0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moya's Jiwa. I'm speaking today to Annie Brewster, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a practicing internist at Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston. She's also a patient diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2001. In 2010, motivated by her belief in the power of stories to improve health, Annie started recording patient narratives. Over the years, Her finished audio stories have been featured on Boston's local NPR. The Health Story Collaborative, which she founded in 2013, grew out of this work. I was honoured to speak with Annie Brewster. Welcome to the show, Annie. We're delighted to be speaking with you today. And I wanted to start with your story as a doctor, your career in medicine. How did that start and, and, and why medicine? Why did you choose to become a doctor?
1: Well, I did not have a linear path to medicine. I actually, I grew up with a father who was a doctor, so I'd been exposed to medicine a lot in my youth, but I really tried to fight it. Interestingly, I I, I thought I don't want to go that route. I, that's a whole nother story. So I I actually majored in human biology in college, but it was very interdisciplinary. I did lots of religious studies and anthropology and psychology. And I, I didn't think I wanted to become a doctor. So I worked with a midwife. I thought about medical anthropology, but I kept coming back to wanting to be a doctor. And I think it's because of the incredible intimacy that we are offered as medical providers to connect with people. And I think that That is really unique to our profession. And so that was something that I kept coming back to as unless I do this training, I am not going to have that opportunity to connect with people deeply and have some concrete skills that I can actually bring to the table. And so I chose medicine, but really it was for the interest in people, I think, and my interest in the the stories and wanting to really be in connection with people.
0: That's what drew me. Was there an aha moment? I mean, you're all about stories. Was there a story that you thought, you know, that's why I want to become a doctor? Is there a story like that?
1: There is a story. So I, in my sort of trying to decide what I'm going to do pathway, I spent a couple of months in Guatemala at one point, I was in my early 20s. And I uh, met up with a gentleman who was an ophthalmologist who worked there And he sort of took me under his wing and took me out um, to the villages where he was doing surgeries. And I remember there was one moment where we were just invited into a family's home. He was doing follow-up visits, so he'd fix the cataracts of some of the family members. And I just remember the, the intimacy and the beauty of being invited into these homes and the generosity of spirit that was shown to us and the fact that it had changed these lives so dramatically. So the woman who he'd done the surgery on was a weaver, and now she could weave again, and she hadn't been able to before. And so it was just that small thing. But it was really like, I remember the hard-boiled egg they gave us. That was his payment, really. I think a a, a Coca-Cola and a hard-boiled egg, and it was the best payment ever. It was just so beautiful. And they, they were so grateful, and the way that we were invited in, I think, to their world just really struck me. Yeah. And that was the turning point where I thought, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I want to do this.
0: What a, what a gorgeous story. So so, what variety of doctor are you now?
1: So I'm an internal medicine doctor. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And again, sort of my nonlinear path was apparent there because I actually started in psychiatry. Yeah. Uh, So I went to Harvard for medical school and when I'd gone, I I had sort of a very idealistic notion that I could, I wanted to be a a family doctor, an internal medicine doctor, a primary care doctor when I went. And I sort of thought I could be like the doctors of a hundred years ago. I think I was a bit idealistic, but I really craved that. I wanted to sort of have a small panel of patients and a community and know my patients in the context of their lives and know them well. And I really couldn't find that in Boston at Harvard. There was no family medicine program at the time that I was there. There was just internal medicine. And it seemed very much that most people who were going into that were going into specialties. And so I really went back and forth. And I decided ultimately that I would pursue psychiatry because, again, it was the stories. I really wanted the stories. And so I did two years of psychiatry training, which I loved in a way, but I found myself really missing the physical body to the holistic. I really wanted to take care of body and mind. And I missed that. And I, and I, you know, also felt like I wasn't sure that that was the best use of my of my strengths in the storytelling. Yes. But I, well, that's a whole nother story. But I couldn't really imagine myself being sort of a psychotherapist for someone for 10 years. And I wanted to I'm more interested in sort of a connection and, and a movement. And the movement piece is interesting to me. And I wanted the body and the mind and sort of the whole human being. And so I switched back to internal medicine. And then I ended up in primary care.
0: Fantastic. Are you doing primary care now?
1: I'm not. So I'm now doing urgent care. So I did primary care for four years early on. This is many years ago. I switched out in um, 2008. Mm. And I really found it sort of heartbreaking in the system that we have today Don't get me wrong, I think it's the most important field that there is. And I have the deepest respect for people that can stay in it. And I think it's what we need to fix to make our healthcare system better. But the way that I experienced it, I found I've said soul killing, that sounds a little dramatic, but I really felt saddened um, because I inherited an entire panel of patients at once. So I had like over 1,500 patients. I was only working four days a week at that time because I'd recently had a baby. And there was just no way I was going to get to know them all. And I was paid on productivity. So I was, I was not making my own schedule. Someone else was, I had, you know, 20 minute visits that was including for full physicals. I worked in a women's health center. So those 20 minutes could be, you know, someone who had diabetes and hypertension and depression and who needed a pap smear and all of that to happen in 20 minutes is tough. And I am like, weirdly time obsessed person. Like I like being on time because to me that always feels respectful. And so I hated being late and it really made me upset to be late. And I had a baby at home, so I really couldn't afford to be that late because I had a child to pick up from daycare. So that tension I was really feeling, and I don't know that my patients would have felt that, but I was feeling that. And I was feeling forced into that mindset of like the minute someone walks in the room, you're thinking, How can I move them out of the room, which is terrible? And that's not why we went into this field, right? Mm -hmm. And then I would, you know, the hardest thing would come up sometimes when people were exiting the room, like on their way out the door. Oh, by the way, I've been really depressed and I haven't been sleeping or, oh, by the way, my husband hit me or whatever it is. And those are the very important things that I went into this field to be able to work with people on and be with them through and then in those moments, because of this structure that was being imposed on me, I found myself feeling anxious or even annoyed. Or and I, I just felt at odds with those feelings. It didn't feel good. I didn't feel like I could be with people the way that I really wanted to be with people. And I didn't like that it was so linked to this fiscal aspect. That you know, every month I would get a printout of like, are you in the red or are you in the black, based on the numbers and the complexity of the patients I was seeing. And And so it felt very transactional in a way that that I didn't like. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time. I would talk with my patients then very openly and saying, like, this is this system's hard for everybody because patients would be frustrated with the system and doctors are frustrated. And I just felt like it set up an antagonism almost between the patient and the provider Because, you know, let's say a patient comes 20 minutes late, maybe they were in a traffic jam, they couldn't help it, but then the provider is set up to feel annoyed because then they're backed up. Or if the patient doesn't show up because life gets in the way, then my paycheck was taking a hit. So, right, it built in this sort of antagonistic dynamic where it was actually supposed to be a therapeutic one. and, And I didn't like that. And I felt like I just, I want to be able to be with people and care for people the way that I want. And I don't feel that I'm able to do this right now. And so I felt, I think under it all really sad, but then that can manifest as frustration and just feeling burned out, you know, and I had again, a family life. I had two young kids at that time. So, you know, that was attention and I was trying to balance all that. And I just ended up feeling like I can't be with people the way that I want. And this isn't I I had an instinct that the best thing I could do for my patients would be to really listen to them. And I really tried to do that and to try to be with them on the journey. But I think the system just made me feel really sad.
0: How many years did you do family medicine?
1: Uh, It was primary care, internal medicine. I did it for just four years, which is short, which I sort of like wish I could have stuck with it. But again, like... I think the situation was hard because I inherited that entire practice instead of building, building and getting to know people as I went. Mm. Because I just felt like there was no way I was going to know anyone. And every week I would get like stacks of these papers I had to sign for people I'd never laid eyes on, you know, um, about just insurance stuff. So
0: I I think in, in that moment, you have told the story of probably all family doctors no matter where they work in the world, this is a very, very common story, a very sad story. But the reality of how the system can chew you up and spit you out. But anyway, you are here to tell us something much Mm -hmm. more positive. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk now about your trajectory as a patient, because that must have been a huge turning point in your life.
1: Definitely. So you know, interestingly, these were sort of happening simultaneously, but like my, my doctor experience and my patient experience, but I didn't really like until later sort of bring them together. But so, you know, I was becoming disillusioned with primary care at the same time, or I was just finishing residency actually, when I had my first, uh, symptoms related to multiple sclerosis. And so I, it was in 2001. Um, I was a resident, I, you know, was sort of experiencing some of the disillusionment that I was talking about, but from the resident perspective, and then I I developed some symptoms at the time that I really just kind of blew off and ignored for a while uh, of just tingling in my feet and it climbed up my legs and it kept getting higher and it kept getting higher and I kept ignoring it, just pressing on. And then I finally just went to my primary care doctor. The long and the short of it is I ended up seeing a neurologist. And I had an MRI and a spinal tap and I was told that I had a lesion on my spinal cord That in my spinal fluid, there was breakdown of myelin products, myelin basic products. And so I almost certainly had MS and for me, that was incredibly jarring. You know, I, I I talk about it as sort of an identity meltdown. And it was like really not ideal. And I don't entirely blame the doctor. Again, I blame the system. But, you know, the when I was seeing that neurologist, who was like a world-renowned neurologist researcher, very well thought of, but I waited for, you know, an hour and a half. And then I had like 12 minutes in the exam room. And I was sort of told very abruptly kind of like, this is what you have and you should go on the disease modifying therapy now. And, and at that point in my life, I was, as I said, a resident, I also had a two year old and I was going through a divorce at that point. And so I was like, really what I was thinking is I, I, I want to start my life anew. I want to have more children. I want to find another partner. I can't be somebody who has a degenerative neurologic condition. And I didn't even get that far in thinking about it. Really, I just shut it down because what I really needed was like a little room for maybe. And I think that there was maybe in there. There's a lot more mystery than sometimes we doctors let on. Like I had one lesion on my spinal cord, so it wasn't certain. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have told me what they thought it might be, but I, I think I would have done better with a little more time. Like, let's see how this evolves. And maybe it's this, maybe it's not then I could have left and processed, but instead it was like, go on the medicine now. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I left and I, I was alone. It was just, I was a mess, but I like just buried it. And I went on for like five years after that, pretty much in denial. I mean, I gradually, gradually came out of it, but I was in denial big time, which isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes denial can be you know, transiently adaptive, but you don't want to get stuck there. Right. And so I just shut it down and I slowly, slowly, slowly began to realize that I had to integrate this into my life that, but I, what I, well, what I hadn't thought of as a doctor. So I, I really actually am grateful for this experience because I think it taught me a lot as a provider about what it means to get a diagnosis because I had never thought about the sort of identity aspect of it, that, uh, that it really just, you know, shakes everything up and forces you to rewrite your story. And sometimes, as doctors, you know, we think our job is done. We've solved the problem. We have a diagnosis. Here it is. The story is over. But really, the story is just beginning. And it's like a huge process after that that I had never really thought of with my own patients. Of like, what does that mean for someone and and their self concept? And so I had been someone who'd sort of always by brute force been able to just like power my way through things, head down, just keep going. And then, you know, and I'd been an athlete and suddenly like I couldn't really do that. And that was really hard for me to come to terms with. Mm. And so I went into denial and, you know, eventually I started to sort of, as I said, realize that I had to learn how to integrate this. But that's sort of how I came to stories Mm. because what I realized is like, I found myself like craving those stories before I was like, I was very private for a long time. I only told my family and my closest friends because somehow I felt like, I don't know, like I was like broken and it marred me and I was embarrassed, which is so interesting to me too, as a provider and thinking about, cause I would think, why would my patients ever feel embarrassed about having that? But I felt embarrassed mm-hmm. and like less than, or that people would treat me differently or treat me like less than, or, make assumptions about me. And I just wasn't really ready to, to deal with that. So I, I really was private, but I wanted to hear stories from other people. Um, and I couldn't really find them. I didn't want like little media soundbites. I didn't want like overly sort of redemptive stories. I wanted real stories about like, this is what it's like. But I also wanted hopeful stories And I don't mean like hopeful stories that gloss over the hard, but I wanted stories of like, okay, so this is hard and this is how I have survived and this is how I've moved on. Not necessarily stories of cure or not stories of like, this is all wonderful and has made me stronger. But yeah, this is really hard and this is what was hard. And this is what I'm going to do to move forward because I, what's my alternative? I'm going to move forward and I want to move forward in a positive way. And so I started like wanting those stories, but I couldn't find them. So that made me start thinking about stories. And then gradually I started to tell my own story. And actually like the first time I was out with it, I wrote about it uh, for a publication through the public radio station here through their health blog. And that was sort of the first time that a lot of people found out about it which was weird, but also great that I didn't have to like explain my way through everything to everybody. But I found that sort of empowering that I was sort of stepping into myself and being like, yeah, this is who I am. So that I sort of experienced that empowerment of, of telling my whole story and owning my story, taking charge of my story. And so that experience of telling and also my yearning for stories, which by the way, I did not want to go to a support group because I was sort of scared actually that I would get like trapped what if someone had like a really downer story? Like I, and again, I didn't want just upper stories, but I wanted to be able to listen on my own terms. Like, okay, I can hit pause if I want to, or I can turn off. So that's what started me thinking: like, I'm going to start collecting stories for other patients who are in a situation like me, so that they can listen on their own terms in their own homes when they're sort of pondering, "Do I have this diagnosis, or do I not? Or how am I going to move forward with this? And how am I going to make sense of it?" And so. I started collecting those stories. I just, it took me a while to get over the fear of like the technology fear. Like it was mostly technology. Like how do I audio edit? But then I hired someone from radio to come and show me how to do it. And I practiced and practiced still learning. And I, you know, bought a digital recorder and just started doing it. And what the thing that really struck me and the doing is like, I, I was interested in creating this library for listeners, but that that actually like in doing it, I realized this process that I was engaging in with people, well, giving them the time and the space to share their story mm. was so empowering to them to mm. also the, the step of sharing it too, because in that giving back, there is agency. So they sort of process it. I would interview, I started doing audio stories. So I would audio, I would interview someone for an hour or something, you know, hour, hour and a half. And then I would, edit it down to like a eight to 12 minute segment with the, their um, help in the process to make sure it felt authentic. But there was something about sort of that finding the nuggets and the, and the essence of it for, and that process of going through that. And then also the, the, the sharing of that to feel like you're offering something to somebody else who's in your situation, which can make you feel better. Yeah, that's, So that's how I started doing it.
0: That's amazing. Um, Two things to to remind myself, really, in listening to what you were saying. Number one, my dear wife actually bought me some cards recently called resilience cards. And I was reading one this morning, which really struck me. And it said, contrary to popular belief, we are built to withstand storms. And clearly that's very apparent in your story. And the second thing that occurs to me is that one of the things that always astonishes me as somebody involved with medical students is that we pick some of the most creative, amazing minds in the world and put them through this system and turn them out as doctors. And we forget that underneath that technical person is an extraordinarily creative person. And that has clearly been demonstrated in what you've just told us. So I'm going to go back now and, and ask you about maybe a snippet, a story that was told to you in the course of all of this time that you remember in particular.
1: Oh, there are so many stories. Let's see. I mean, honestly, like they're all such a privilege to hear. To hear. And I'm just continually just struck by the strength and resilience of people. I don't know. For some reason, the one that jumped to mind, I mean, there's so many, but the one that first popped into my mind, so that's what I'll go with, was a guy named Larry, who was, uh, when I met him, I guess, in his 40s, but he had become a quadriplegic when he was 18, I think. He was in the Bahamas on a spring break trip with his friends, and he dove into the water while he was intoxicated and broke his neck. And he'd been sort of a high school football player and all these things and just had a really hard journey, obviously. But just the way that I had met Larry as actually he worked in the development office of my hospital and he had found a way to to work full time and to live a very full life. But just hearing about his journey and sort of his process of being that young kid who was sort of hit hard with that you can't do anything anymore, sort of is what one doctor said, you'll never walk again, focusing on sort of like what you can't do. And then the thing that really shifted it for him in that moment was someone who I think was also either a paraplegic or a quadriplegic himself, who came in and visited in the hospital, who was sort of a role model mentor, who said to him, Larry, you can do anything you want to do, you can still figure out a way to play like wheelchair rugby or uh, you know, whatever. And he went on to do this. He had a little bit of motion in his shoulders, not much, but he did. He played some wheelchair rugby. He did some skiing, sitting in a chair, you know, with ha- being guided down. But he, that moment for him of sort of thinking, what can I do? And yeah, this stinks. And believe me, a lot of his story is what is really hard. And it is really hard to be quadriplegic. But, you know, he picked up on like, okay, so what am I going to do? I can only focus on what I can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that process is to go through that very hard identity shift that he had to go through. And so that's part of the beautiful healing process, but he just was a great guy and he really inspired me and in, in talking to him. So there's so many stories, but he's one that stands out or just one that jumped into my head right now. Yeah.
0: That's, um, that's, a, that's a lovely, lovely story. And I can see how that would be so inspiring, not just to people who are in that position, but people who are in a lesser, have lesser physical problems, but then suddenly realize that you've got it within you to, as I say, weather that storm, Never mind the little one that just rocked your boat a little bit at this point in time. So yeah. from here, where to from here, Annie, we, we've got, you've you made a very good point all along that really the system doesn't allow us to get to know our patients particularly well and in fact forces us in many cases to cut short that conversation cut short that relationship in the in the name of getting people through this factory that has become healthcare you're you're finding these stories which really could help certainly medical students but definitely even doctors to see the people that they are caring for in a very different light So where to from here? How do you see the Health Story Collaborative making a difference to where we're going?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think bottom line is we need to create opportunities for story sharing, for story exchange in healthcare. And that's really fundamentally what we're about. And I'll tell you a little bit about some of our programs. But I want to say before we get there, because I think it's really important that When I had just started this out in in 2000, well, I started collecting the stories in 2010. In 2012, I met one of my colleagues, Jonathan Adler, who's a psychologist, um, and he is the chief academic officer of Health Story Collaborative. And he is a psychologist who studies the health benefits of narrative. And so meeting him, and again, like when I first met him, I was someone who was thought, well, why do we need to measure everything like this? obviously helps people. But his research is really like based in human lives. And he studies sort of the health benefits of storytelling. And so there's a lot of research that's his and that field of sort of narrative identity and narrative psychology that really informs our work. And so it is really grounded in, in concrete data of sort of how storytelling can help us. And so I do think that's important to say, like there are certain themes that we're pulling for, but also it's about integration. And part of the research shows that, yes, we need to process and delve into the difficult as well as the, you know, so it's not you have to do both. Um, So that research guides us. But I think that the way we need to to do this is, you know, I. Obviously, ideally, it would be great if we had longer patient visits and fewer patients per provider, and we could really engage in this kind of work in the exam room. And I think we can bring some of this to that and think about it. Mm. But I think we need to create programs outside of the exam room uh, for this to happen. Mm. And Mm. I think ideally that happens within hospitals. And so for me to start Health Story Collaborative, I actually had to step outside uh, to say, I'm going to just start this and do this because there are so many rules and restrictions. I don't know how it is in Australia, but here there's so much sort of risk aversion in hospitals and paranoia that it can be hard to innovate and hard to start these things that to me, it seems like a no brainer. Like, obviously, this is going to help our patients. Why wouldn't we want to do this? But there's but, but I have been I've encountered a lot of sort of resistance and fear of like, oh, what about, you know, patient privacy and what about litigation and all these things? And I found it hard to sort of integrate this into the healthcare system, but I've made strides over time. I'm trying to infiltrate, but I think I had to step outside initially to get it off the ground. But I think ideally we need to have more of this in the hospital because it's good for patients and providers and family members and everybody. And so one of the big programs we do now is live storytelling events. They're called Healing Story Sessions. And so we have a whole narrative guide that we use to help people write their stories. We work with them really extensively in advance of these live events to help them craft it and we go back and forth, you know, numerous times in editing and helping them to shape. And really it's us just asking probing questions like think what about this or have you thought about this or can you say more about that or and helping them to sort of draw out those themes and the themes that we really focus on are agency which is sort of feeling like you're in the driver's seat or your sense of control, communion, which is about connection, connectedness to others, um, redemption, which is about sort of how not everything is purely redemptive, but there are redemptive elements in everything I think. And how did this sort of start bad and what is the good that's come out of this? And then also coherence, like how can you sort of make a coherent story out of what's happened to you? And all of those things have really been linked to positive mental health. So in our healing story sessions, we write with people beforehand, but we've done it with people who can't write, too, who are illiterate, and we've just talked with them through this process. And then they prepare a story that they share in front of an audience. And there is that give and take in the audience, too, that like it's an act of agency just to stand up there and be sharing with that audience. But there's also magic that happens in that room in terms of community building and togetherness. And But one of the programs we have Within that is a patient-provider model. And so that one, I think, is fascinating because it is actually having, we have a different narrative guide for the provider and for the patient, but we work with like patient and provider who are in a pre-existing therapeutic relationship. We say to them, let's each write your story about your lives, about your journey, but also about your relationship together. And then they come together and share, and they share that at that event without having heard each other's stories. And then we have a dialogue between them and then a dialogue with the audience, and that's always really, to me, I think those are really the most powerful because it's it's playing with boundaries in a way that is not typical in medicine. And of course, we're doing it in a contained, safe way. I know there's a lot of like fear about violating those boundaries, but I I can say like after I become a patient, I have become less boundaryed as a provider, not in a negative way. I never would ever want my patients to worry about me, and I don't burden them with my. But I'm more willing to sort of give of myself in a way. And in these events, I think it's really healing for the provider and the patient to see the humanity in each other and to realize that they're actually more the same than they are different. And then it inserts something new into that relationship that then they carry forward with them in time, which I think is really I like that idea. And those have been really powerful. So those live events we've done in the hospital setting and we will continue to move more of them. And there's always like one or two per- people in the audience who are uncomfortable with that, with the boundaries, but I, but most people just find it really incredibly valuable. And I think, you know, obviously we respect boundaries are very important, but there is a safe amount of sharing of like, oh, the, do- the doctor's a human being. One we did for a di- diabetes um, support group in a hospital, one of our city hospitals. And that was fascinating because the doctor who shared had a lot of other patients in the room too, in the audience. So that was really cool for them to hear his story about growing up and why he chose to become a doctor and some of the challenges that he'd had. And it really brought humanity to him, which was cool,
0: I think. I think, Brewster, you clearly survived the storm. And if you look out the window, you'll see that the sun has just come up. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure.
0: The Journal of Health Design: Better Health by Design. Visit us at the journal com.